1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Duck Pond with Julia Catrell. It's uh, June 11th, 2021. Julia, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine?
2: Well, you know, I sort of had a a little bit of a head start in my journey into the wine industry. I was raised on a small organic vineyard that was planted by my father in 1973. Uh, So I spent a lot of my childhood out there with a hand hoe, uh, you know, pulling leaves, uh, raising catch wires, and just generally sort of doing all of the uh, sort of unglamorous work of of the vineyard. Um, And I think like a lot of farm kids, my parents had big ambitions for me to do lots of other things in the world. I think my mom especially saw, always saw me as a college professor or something far, far away, um, you know, and that I might eventually retire to the farm. And I, you know, I loved being there and I went to Reed College to study anthropology, uh, really with just a, a, a passion for this subject and not much of an idea of what to do with it. And I think I thought, well, you know, I'll go to graduate school. And by the time I finished my undergrad, I was just ready to never sit in a chair again. Um, and so I had a couple of trips planned, one to South America and one to the Grand Canyon. And they happened to bookend harvest perfectly just by, uh, just by happenstance. And Tad Seastead, uh, the proprietor of Ransom, who we were selling grapes to, said, oh, you know, if you're free for October and the first half of November, you should really come and work a wine harvest, you know, make some money for your travels, and, uh, you know, and then you can go to graduate school. (laughs) Um, So I worked a wine harvest, really liked it. Still didn't feel ready to go to graduate school. Uh, Went back to Portland, worked, um, you know, some sort of, Odd jobs, um, and suddenly it was harvest season again, and so I thought, Oh, we're one more harvest. Um, and by the second one, I think I had enough of an understanding mm-hmm. of what was going on um, you know, how dynamic the community was, you know, how much passion there was, and how much opportunity there was to have a career that really kind of enveloped uh, the sciences and manual labor um, and you know, this really complete sensory experience. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe actually this is something that I should pursue. And as it happened, the previous assistant winemaker had gone on to uh, work on his own project, and so I was able to transition into a full-time role um, between Ransom and Lumos, who are sharing space in a small winery space in McMinnville. Um, and I just kind of hit the ground running and, um, and, you know, did everything from, you know, general labor there and, um, you know, was trying to kind of learn on the side. Always thought that maybe I would go back and get a master's in viticulture and analogy, but at some point realized that I kind of had the roles that I would be hoping to transition into following that graduate work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just kept, you know, reading articles and, um, you know, trying to learn everything that I could while, while uh, while working in those roles. And I guess in some ways, I'm a real outlier in that I have effectively, the same job that I started with, um, although it's gone through a number of permutations. Uh, I guess it's been basically 15 years later. Uh, I'm still the winemaker for Ransom and Lumos, so I've worked up from uh, harvest intern to uh, to winemaker and along the way have, you know, worked a few other places including Dimineo 4 uh, and a harvest season at Escarpment in New Zealand. Uh, but effectively, I've really uh, I've really sunk my teeth into what I'm doing and, and really evolved along with the role.
1: So you mentioned obviously growing up in kind of in the industry, or at least in the, in the vineyard part of the industry. What was your perspective? What were the first kind of memories you have of, of wine outside of sort of the family farm? What, what did it mean to you when you were growing up?
2: So actually, ironically, my very first memory is uh, of wine. My first memory is just before my first birthday um, in my dad's arms at Myron Redford's summer solstice party. Um, You know, it's it's one of those memories that you can date because the summer solstice is the same day every year. Um, And, you know, seeing all of these people kind of happy and, you know, dancing and eating and drinking and, um, you know, and and really sort of like reveling. Um, And, you know, I guess that felt a little bit more, you know, I think, My family growing up perhaps wasn't quite as involved in the social scene of the wine world, um, you know, as perhaps I have have come to be. Uh, You know, they're pretty focused and um, you know, and and definitely kind of more morning folks who get up and get out into the vineyard. Mm -hmm. But but it is ironic that my first memory is of the of of that gathering. Um, And I think it was interesting growing up in one of the small communities that you know, I would say at that time and, and still to this day is not quite as engaged in the wine industry. You know, I went to Amity schools. I did transfer to McMindle for high school just to be able to take a few additional like AP classes. Um, but you know, my peers growing up, nobody else was involved in wine um, in, in any way really. And there's definitely a sense that, you know, that wine was fancy people who were from elsewhere. Um, and I think that was like a real, challenge to conceptualize my place you know my family uh, farm has been um, you know in the family and been farmed by my family since 1917 so it's a century farm my family has really deep roots in the community and and on our land Um, but I think growing up I did in some ways still feel like a little bit of an outsider because of our connection to the swine community you know Mm -hmm. that I think even though my family was farming in the Amity area, and all of my childhood friends' families were also farming in the Amity area, there was a sense of this sort of, sort of real differentiation between farming wine grapes and farming grass seed or you know any of the other uh, commodity crops. Um, and it's something that I feel really keenly aware of. I think you know maybe in a different way than than a lot of people and. It's definitely uh, something that I'd love to see more work on by the industry going forward. You know, I think drawing connections with the broader agricultural community, you know, is, is not just sort of good manners. It's also, I think, good business. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's something that, you know, that we that we don't do enough of. Um, and ultimately, I think agricultural diversity is is really important. And um, and especially up in the hills, perhaps under threat in some ways. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned kind of going to school without really any kind of clear intention of what you were going to do with school. I'm curious, at what point did did wine become something that was realistic? Was it was it only after school? Did you did you think about it growing up at all? Did you think about it in high school or college that you might get into wine or farming?
2: I think by the time I was in college, I definitely I wrote my uh, my undergraduate thesis at Reed on the appellation control system in Burgundy and sort of how it reified and just sort of like renegotiated uh, cultural normativity um, in in these rural communities you know where it was applied and I think by that point I had a sense that potentially this would be a way forward for me in some way Um, you know maybe not a a clear sense and certainly if I had had a clear sense sooner I think it would have made sense to do the you know the undergrad program at Oregon State or or at Davis Mm. Um, but but I think you know I always felt a really deep connection to our you know place and always felt kind of like profoundly uncomfortable with the idea of transitioning to being somebody who was living in an urban environment or being far away. I mean it always it always felt really wrong and I think it was always something that was kind of in in conflict mm-hmm. um, and you know I think I didn't have a clear understanding. And quite frankly, I think the industry has really matured a lot, and there are more clear opportunities for young professionals than there were when I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid, I don't think that you had the sense that you could come out of college and, you know, get a job as a seller hand that would be, you know, full-time and with benefits and work your way up through, you know, it didn't... It didn't feel accessible, I guess, in the same way that that I hope it does now, and it's something that I think is a is a tremendous uh, benefit of the wine studies program at Linfield is you know to have something in the community that you know creates some of those bridges, um, you know, and I, and I hope that that continues to sort of make the wine industry feel like a possibility for you know for for folks growing up around here, um, because I do think that it it is the sort of undergirding of a lot of the sort of best professional opportunities in the region. Um, And I think, you know, growing up here, it didn't feel, even as somebody who was connected to it, it didn't really feel accessible to me. Um, And I am certain that it didn't feel accessible to Mm -hmm. any of my peers. Um, Some of whom do not work in the wine industry, (laughs) you know, but it it just, it felt like a million miles away, even Mm -hmm. though it was right in our midst.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting perspective. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you, you talked about your, your thesis. I'm curious, uh, where did that idea come from?
2: Well, I mean, I think I, like so many uh, young academics, was sort of at the mercy of my advisor, um, who I had already selected. And I had this idea that I wanted to look at something locally because I really wanted to be able to do some ethnographic work, um, which was not necessarily encouraged by the Reed College. Anthropology department. The idea was always that you were going to get a Ph.D. in anthropology, so you might as well do a research-based undergrad thesis because then you could go and do this like big ethnographic piece for your doctorate. Um, you're nodding as if you have heard this all before. <laughs> um, but so
1: same, same idea, different school.
2: Totally, yeah. <laughs> so Paul Silverstein was my advisor. Um, you know, and he he's tremendous, and I really enjoy him. He's incredibly passionate, and his um, primary fields were. France and North Africa um, and North Africa, you know while tremendously fascinating I did a lot of coursework in it wasn't really you know a focus of, of passion for me um, and so I kind of went to him with this idea that I wanted to talk about land use planning in rural areas in Oregon, um, you know, which was something you know growing up in a an area that felt very rural and kind of felt like McMansionville as I was as I was coming of age, um, you know I was really alarmed by Not just the scale of the development, but also the tone of the development. The idea that it wasn't, oh, you know, someone has taken this basically vacant parcel and developed it into, you know, a small homestead or a small vineyard or a small Mm -hmm. orchard, but somebody has basically developed it into an enormous lawn with a huge house in the middle of it. Um, You know, felt profoundly uncomfortable um, and frankly like an affront to the way of life that, you know, that I had enjoyed growing up. Um, And so that was kind of like where I really wanted to focus my energy. And he, you know, was kind of like, you know, it seems like maybe you're a little close to the subject, and your ability to sort of produce something with any sense of academic objectivity is pretty compromised on this, um, which he was completely right, if you can't tell. Um, And also, you know, what kind of source material are you gonna be looking at in terms of the text? You know, there isn't a lot. Mm -hmm. What if you did something that was sort of Tangentially related to what you are looking at in a place where you have a little bit more critical distance um, and also where There is really interesting sort of like legal textual work that you can fall back on you know What if you looked at this in Burgundy? um, Which I think has similar challenges and the challenges maybe have been going on for a lot longer um, and you know, and they have had this, you know, this approach of codifying a lot of their agricultural practices in a way that also codifies land use. Um, you know, it might be an interesting way to, you know, get a get a better look at your subject in a way that maybe is a little bit more productive. Mm-hmm. And I think that was great advice. Um, I definitely I learned a lot doing that thesis. Not nearly as much. As I uh, would if I was potentially doing it now, and not as a you know burned-out 22-year-old who was ready to never be in a library again. Um, but I think it, you know it dovetailed uh, really well with um, my sort of burgeoning interest in wine. Um, it was a great excuse for me to spend money I didn't have on drinking wines from Burgundy, especially you know for my you know qualifying exam. You know, it was definitely one of those things where it's like, okay, great. Now I have to buy some Burgundies because. If I don't, then uh, they probably won't pass me because I should have done a better job and I should have worked harder. Um, <laughs> but I definitely learned a lot. And uh, equally as importantly, now when people say, "Oh, did you get your degree in wine?" I can say, "Well, I got my degree in anthropology, which is, you know, the study of asking critical thinking questions about, you know, human culture, which I think is incredibly relevant. And also, I wrote my thesis on adolescent control A uh, in rural France." Um, which you know satisfies anyone who uh, who feels that anthropology isn't sufficiently relevant to uh, to my professional life. But it is—it's a joke that I tell all the time, and I think it's really true beyond my own experience um, that I got the alternative um, viticulture and enology degree for Oregon, which is a completely esoteric degree in a liberal arts uh, that makes you say what on earth am I going to do with my degree? I think there are tons of winemakers who have philosophy degrees or European history degrees. Um, And yeah, I mean, you laugh because I know that you have, you're counting in your head, you've interviewed so many of them, right? Um, But I think ultimately it's the thing that is perhaps the most precious about the wine industry, besides being connected to you know, the world that we live in, is this sense of a community of people who mm. are incredibly passionate about what they're doing and just whatever idea is in front of them. Um, and I think that a lot of times, those people tend to uh, major in something really impractical in college. <laughs> and then they end up here.
1: The majors that make your parents cringe.
2: Exactly, yes. I think my mother did cringe, but. <laughs> uh,
1: so you mentioned uh, first harvest is just kind of a happy coincidence. Was it all timing? Tell me about your sort of memories of first harvest. What, what was what was it like? What was what was the work like, and what was it about it that appealed to you?
2: Well, it was two thousand and seven, so it rained a lot. Um, I think my first day coincided with the beginning of the really heavy rains Um, and i think it was you know tad had said okay you'll work six days a week 12 hours a day and the first day i think i had the flu actually so i showed up to work with a fever of 103 i cleaned the press in the rain for about eight hours and then he said you should go home i was like no you said we're working 12 (laughs) hours I'm, i'm here for it i'm gonna do it i'm gonna work for 12 hours he's like there's going to be plenty of time for that. Go home and get some sleep. Um, and I'm glad I did, because you know how it is when you, you get a cold or the flu during harvest. It just drags on. So you know, it rained. I was sick. We worked many, many days in a row. It was not six days a week. It was eight days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think, I mean, a lot of our our seller hand, Aaron, his first harvest was this last year with the fires. Um, And I do think having a really challenging vintage as your first vintage sets you up really well um, with uh, reasonable expectations for harvest going forward. Um, You know, and I think I kind of went into it with this perspective of, you know, I know I can work hard, but the kind of hours that they're talking about seem crazy. Like, people Mm -hmm. can't really do that, right? And I think there is a tremendous satisfaction with really you know realizing what you're capable of um, and you know and really just kind of like making the most of of an incredibly difficult situation Um, and you know it was fun there was camaraderie we we had a house nearby that was tad's house and so we'd work all day and then go have a a long dinner and you know drink some cool wines and um, you know then come back and and work some more and um, and i think you know that sense of that sense of camaraderie and work was something that I hadn't necessarily like, really had in that way before, and, and I found that tremendously fulfilling as well.
1: Tell me about Tad as kind of a first a first wine mentor boss. What, what what was he like? What did you learn from him? And and what was the what was the kind of atmosphere like around him and his work?
2: You know, so I think it's great to uh, it's great to have had. Tad and die together because I think they, they have really different styles of management and personality types. And you know, I think Tad is somebody who he is super passionate. He has this real sense of, you know, right and wrong and, and the way to do things and and black and white and you know and he cares really deeply about his people and what he's doing. Um, and I think he also really wants to be like right there in whatever it is. You know, and I think sometimes as you know, as we've worked together over the years, I think especially as you know, as I got more experience, you know, it can become a challenging thing where it's like, no, you know, now I have a really strong sense of how I think that it ought to be done. Uh, but I think you know, to have somebody like that as kind of your first boss is really good because I think you set you set this really strong tone of how things should be done, mm-hmm. and you know, there are really clear expectations. And I think you know, there's that picture of you know the boss like pulling from the front instead of like pushing from the back um you know and i think both tad and i um, you know who are both kind of like early mentors are absolutely great examples of that you know the sense of you know there is a, a lot to do but we're going to be right there in it um, and it's definitely something that i'm trying to incorporate into my own Leadership style, you know that the the harder the work is, like the more present I want to be, which is a challenge sometimes, you know, as a winemaker because you have so much paperwork and work orders, and you know I think it's it's a challenge sometimes to get back out into uh, into the throw of it. But I think I think that was something that Tad did a really good job prioritizing is you know making sure that you know setting aside all of that stuff mm-hmm. and. You know, being on the floor mm-hmm. during harvest and and making sure that there was a sense that we were really doing it together.
1: And you mentioned, of course, Dai at uh, Lumos. Uh, uh, tell me about him and, and sort of what you what you what you learned from him. And, and as you kind of went off into your own leadership role, what did you bring from both of them? Besides, I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier, but what what else did you bring from them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the you know die is. I would say, probably the most confident uh, delegator, and sort of, you know, he has this really expansive view of, you know, what the team can accomplish that I think is really, it, it really, he doesn't center himself in that. Um, you know, he has a really strong sense of what people are capable of, and I think he's really good at setting his own ego aside and saying, you know, no, like you can do that. You are great, you are doing a great job. You know, like I am going to make sure that you feel empowered to do that on your own. And, you know, I think it's the reason that he is able to wear so many hats so effectively um, because he, he has the ability to set things in the hands of the people. You know, and it's not like, you know, I'm checking out and I'm gonna go do something else. You know, he's still very present, but I think he does a really good job figuring out who is right for the role at hand and making sure that they have the tools they need to do it and then making sure that they're empowered to do it and then like truly delegating entire tasks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I have tried really hard to incorporate into my own leadership style. Um, You know, this idea that, you know, obviously on your first day of your first harvest, you can't say okay your task is to make this entire wine you know maybe the first task is clean this entire fermenter on your own or you know do this entire pump over on your own um, but i think in management it's really easy to give somebody part of a task give them the easier part and then give a more experienced person the harder part um, and you know pair people together in ways that aren't necessarily ideally suited for everyone's kind of job satisfaction and learning, and I really try to think of tasks as discrete units, you know, in whatever way that means, um, and give people a task that is salient in and of itself. Um, And, you know, obviously as people grow in their roles, you can kind of build on that Mm -hmm. where, you know, maybe the first task is, do this entire pump over yourself and then you know maybe a couple years on it's hey you know like why don't you sort of be the person who is always kind of like managing the fermentation curve on this and really checking in with it um, but i think that you know that's definitely something i feel like i learned from dyes being really intentional about the ways in which you delegate so you can really help people grow um, and i think maybe from the combination of the two of them there is this idea i have about a the rule of the rule of 10% that you know if you are giving feedback, it's really important to be intentional about the kind of like ratio of positive to critical feedback. Um, and so my, what I try to do, and I don't know, maybe maybe you'll interview some of the people who work for me someday and they'll be like, no, she was terrible. <laughs> um, what I try and do is you know if somebody is doing something that's negative 40% of the time and something that seems like they're on the right track, 60% of the time, I try and give 70% positive feedback, so you always, you know, feel because I think people hear things that are critical a lot more than they hear things that are positive. And I think, you know, trying to be intentional about, you know, not just washing over all of the things that are problematic, but making sure that people really hear mm-hmm. the things, you know, that they're mm-hmm. that they're doing well and getting better. Um, and you know, that's something that you know it's it's hard to know exactly how you're doing stuff like that, but it's something that I feel like I really you know divine from from those two
1: People keep showing up for work the next day It's usually a pretty good sign they right? keep showing
2: up <laughs> yeah, exactly you know
1: <laughs> so you mentioned something in that in, in the answer that it begs a question. you talked about kind of you, you start harvest, you don't know you don't really know anything about anything, and so you're given tasks that are possibly not the most enjoyable tasks. So tell me what keeps you coming back, especially for you, what what kept you coming back even when your job was like cleaning stuff in the rain?
2: I mean, I think there is something so affirming about the sense of kind of real purpose that you have. But, you know, I mean, you have literally like mountains of fruit. You know, sometimes, sometimes the mountains that stack up here are, are pretty daunting, quite frankly. Um, you know, and you're turning it into something else. I mean, I think there's this, Tremendous. I think you know every job has a, you know has a purpose and gives you a sense of purpose if you're thinking about it the right way. But there's something so tangible and in abstract about you know what we do during harvest. And and I was I was looking through a set of production records for a wine for a compliance thing. And the set of production records you know which so like one production record would be like oh you know added you know 25 grams per hectoliter of yeast nutrient to this tank. Um, and this production record for this one wine was 64 pages long, single spaced. And that makes me tired just thinking about it. But also, you know, I think it's this thing, you know, you can work by yourself all day and you get a certain amount done. And when you work on a team and everybody's really dialed in, just the amount that you can get done and the sense of flow and camaraderie, I think is, is really tremendous. And, you know, I think I'm, I'm a pretty extroverted person and there's just something great about feeling like you are in this network of people, you know, and and often people who are coming from all over the country who each have, you know, really distinct stories um, and a lot of different stuff to offer and figuring out, you know, what it is that they're good at, how to help them realize their potential and, you know, and really just kind of build something out of, you know, out of what what you've got.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I I still think Harvest is a lot of fun most years, you know. (laughs) I mean, last year, last year, between the pandemic and the fires, I think, you know, felt a little less, less fun. But it was still fun. We had a great team and, you know, they just kept coming back for it and, you know, they dealt with anything that we could throw at them. And I think, uh, you know, that, that sense of, of achieving this tremendous thing with a group of people is, is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable and never really gets old.
1: Going to come back to that. I have some questions about 2020, but we'll come back to those in, <laughs> For in a sure, second. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious. You, your first two first two first two years were harvest only. Uh, then you got in full time work at Ransom. Tell me about the first full year. Seeing what happens the rest of the year as a winemaker and and starting to learn those tasks and roles and developing your own confidence. You mentioned that kind of developing your own confidence, your own opinions. At what point does that start to kick in?
2: I mean, I think it's amazing how uh, how many things you can pick up early on, I think especially if you you know are really you know, paying attention and tasting a lot of other wines. Um, you know, I, I remember going to Tad shortly after my second harvest and saying like, hey, I was tasting through the barrels when I was topping them, um, and I think this barrel, you know, this barrel is kind of bready. And he was like, I don't know about that. Like, I don't see why it would be. The pH is not high, it's been sulfur, and it was like, just taste it you know And he's like you're right it is it is kind of ready um, you know let's you know pull it out and sulfur some more and all this stuff um, and just feeling like oh man this is good like this <laughs> thing that I was trying to you know pull out of the abstraction of tasting different wines like I've got it I've got this thing um, and you know certainly I think it takes a really long time to feel confident about a broad Uh, range of things and I still, you know, I think they say like the more you know, the less uh, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know Um, and that's certainly true of wine and in some ways I think maybe I was more brashly confident, uh, you know, in 2009-2010 about some stuff than than I am now. Um, And when people ask me to explain why I do things sometimes it's like, I don't know, it just like, feels right at this point, I guess. Um, but I think the first year, the first full year, I think anybody who makes wine will tell you that the first full year is kind of a shock to the system, because this sort of rush of adrenaline and the sense of a bunch of people getting around and having a big dinner and then going back and working late is just not there anymore. Um, and I think it's, a, it's something that I try to be really clear with Harvest interns about, that it's like, hey, you know how you love this? If you decide to pursue the wine industry full time, know that it is not going to be like this at all. Because um, quite frankly, I'm not sure that anybody said it to me in quite that clear of terms. Um, and I think that you know a lot of the rest of the year, I mean a lot of it I like even better. You know I love I love blending, I love kind of dialing the wines in and finishing them. Um, but I mean I think most winemakers would say that you know there's mountains of compliance paperwork and you know I this whole thing I said about never wanting a desk job, you know, I, I sit at my desk a lot and you know sometimes that's a struggle and you know all jobs have struggles and I still think mine is is one of the greatest that, that you can have. But um, but I do think that, you know, the first year especially and maybe especially being in that space, you know, I was the only person who was working in production in that space, you know, tad after harvest had to go back and finish up all that paperwork he'd been putting off and, you know, as mostly in the vineyard and so, yeah, you know, I think it was like that first year was certainly maybe a little lonely and a little confusing. Wasn't quite sure that was what I wanted to do and, you know, trying to figure it out. Um, But ultimately, you know, I think it was still, you know, you're learning a lot and and you kind of see the process all the way through and understand how these wines, which are so different at harvest, kind of become what they're going to be. Um, And I think after doing it a few times, I think also, you know, you get to a certain point that you have a broader spectrum of responsibilities in the rest of the year. And so it feels a little bit less, um, you know, like you're doing the same. Like, oh, great, we're gonna rack more tanks and more barrels, and, um, but yeah, I think I think certainly that, that first year was was probably looking back on it, which I honestly haven't in a long time, was uh, you know, was probably was probably a hard one. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you ever, in that time or at any time, think this wasn't something you wanted to do? Did you ever consider leaving the wine industry?
2: Oh, all the time. For sure. <laughs> I mean, I think especially because I had this sense coming into it that I, you know, had made this plan to do something completely different, you know, and I, you know, I mean, I I think for a lot, I don't really grapple with that very much anymore. I think now I have a sense that you know it makes sense for me to be here and that I you know within the industry there are, there are tons of different things you know to do going forward but ultimately I think that you know the industry feels very much like my my home and my place now mm-hmm. um, but yeah I mean I think at that time it definitely still felt like there's so many other things that I you know that I want to do and I think the thing that maybe especially us 90s kids uh, didn't get told as much as uh, as we should have, you know, there's a lot of kind of like language of you can be anything you want. But I think the thing that I try and remind people who are younger of is that you you can be anything, but you can't be everything. And it gets pretty hard, pretty fast mm-hmm. to like turn the ship, you know. Um, and which isn't to say that it can't be done. I mean, I definitely know people who've decided to go to medical school in their 30s, but you know, a lot of especially stuff like that that are kind of long-term career training, um, you know, and I was really aware of that and had a strong sense that a bunch of these things seemed like things that I maybe wanted to do and I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure that I put as much energy into grappling with that as, you know, in a productive way. You know, I didn't do a bunch of informational interviews and try and figure out What were the pluses and minuses of other things? Um, You know, I think I just kind of set myself to the work and eventually kind of felt fulfilled by it. But, Mm -hmm. but certainly, I think anyone anyone who knew me will will tell you that I was definitely struggling with that for sure, (laughs) as I think many people are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe more so coming from kind of that the background of being here and, you know, I think whenever you grow up in a small town, there's always this kind of outward pressure you know of this idea of like oh there's a whole world out there and you know maybe you should see some of it or do something somewhere else and not be a quote unquote townie which you know i think actually the community has changed enough that while i think most of the people that i grew up with um, who you know had really kind of strong career paths planned had this idea that they would do it elsewhere i think now our community is so much more vibrant and there are people who Choose to come back and you know settle down and there's it seems like there's a lot more going on here than it felt like there was in the '90s and early aughts, mm-hmm. which is great because I'm glad to see a bunch of my high school friends, you know, doing cool stuff here. Absolutely. And sometimes we all kind of like wink at each other like, did you think we'd be you know like drinking the, drinking beer at the Oak already? You know like <laughs> I thought I thought we'd go do something else, you know.
1: Obviously, one of the unique things about Ransom, uh, not just wine there, but, uh, but dis- distilling and spirits as well. So tell me about learning that part of, of things as well and about, you know, working with vermouth and things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's been, that's been a really great thing. And, you know, I think it's been great for Ransom as a company to have that flexibility. Um, but I think also it gives you, uh, you know, spirits especially have such a different kind of timeline of production. You know, you're mashing and distilling all the time. It's not like harvest, where it's you know you do it one time in a year, and so I think it's a great opportunity to you know think about fermentation more often, um, you know, and to think about you know enzymes and starch extraction in the mash process. Um, And, you know, vermouth, I think especially, has been great because it kind of puts all these things together. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got your winemaking and your distilling and the infusion process. um, And we, you know, we grow some of the botanicals. So really being able to put together kind of everything for, you know, for this like really dynamic product, I think has been a tremendous learning experience. And I think vermouth, you have this opportunity to think about flavor in a way that I think winemakers sometimes—I know sometimes—I taste a wine and think, "Oh, I just wish that it had a little bit more of a floral character." Um, but in wine, you can't just leave the bag of chamomile in for an extra week and then, boom, it's there. Um, and so I think you know having this real tool—you know where the vermouths have this kind of four-quadrant flavor profile of some bitter herbs and some sweet florals and some kind of like fruit components. Mm-hmm. Um, and some savory components. And so you really get to build through time and tank mm-hmm. this matrix um, that I think really informs winemaking for me. Um, you know, I can think about the way that, that something tastes and it's a little bit more bitter and a little bit more sweet. Um, and then that kind of comes back. I mean, it's, it's harder to manipulate those things in wine. Uh, but I think still having this kind of palate to practice those sensations and the way that they play um, is really instructive and also just really fun. You know, it's it's fun I think to finish harvest and feel completely like you never want to see another grape or maybe even another barrel of wine again, and then go make whiskey in the distillery for a while. And sometimes you wish you could take a break like all the other wine people. Uh, you know, some of them do, some of them don't. But uh, but yeah, I think doing all three is. You know, I think my brain's always going a million miles a minute. And I think even within the sort of dynamism of the line industry, it's easy to get bored with stuff. And you can't get bored when you're making every different thing, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes to a fault. sometimes I wish I was a little more bored. Although I'm not really doing so much with the spirits anymore uh, because ransom is kind of bifurcated now. Mm.
1: Talk about that in a second too, but mm-hmm. I'm curious for for those of us who have never made vermouth, take, give us a brief idea of the vermouth making process. Yeah, uh, especially coming coming from a winemaker.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think the thing that gets missed a lot um, in vermouth production is the vermouth is a lot better if the wine is good to begin with. Um, so, trying to select aromatic whites that have a lot of character. Um, you know, do skin contact on some of them, sometimes if need be, to develop that a little bit more. But really, you know, just focusing on fermentations that really, um, you know, affirm the kind of aromatic character of the grapes. And blending different varietals that kind of create these kind of two distinct base palettes for sweet vermouth and dry. Mm-hmm. So more kind of Muscat Gewürztraminer for the sweet, more towards kind of know Gris, Chardonnay, Riesling for the dry with some crossover. Um, The sweet especially, I do a system where we make sure that the barrels are fortified and not topped, at least part of it, for a long time so you get some of this kind of interesting kind of sherry, oxidative character. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you put together a blend, a base blend. If if you're doing it right, the base blend should kind of taste like vermouth in and of itself. It shouldn't just be boring old wine that tastes like something that you would just drink out of a bottle, but it also shouldn't be bad. or you know, problematically oxidized or flawed in any way. It should be a nice, interesting thing. Um, and then you fortify it with brandy, which we distill uh, at ransom. Um, so just, you know, wine that gets, wine that gets distilled specifically for, for the branding mm-hmm. process. Um, and pre- preferably that spends a couple of years in barrel first and gets pulled out after that. The sweet vermouth, we also make no chino we were kind of scratching our heads and we were doing uh, this process of something that we could use that would create this kind of dark caramel color and kind of nutty flavor that wasn't uh, you know, an additive or extract. There's a lot of artificial caramel color in, you know, in some vermouths mm-hmm. um, and other beverages. And we wanted to do something that we could do that was very kind of like close to the ground. Um, and we had this green walnut tree so we made a little bit of no without the herbs and spices just kind of green walnuts and and brandy and wine um, and it's it's a perfect thing for for the vermouth and it's something that we can do on the farm so uh, you add that into the sweet not for the dry and then take all these botanicals and citrus and You know, So, wormwood herb and orange and cardamom and coriander and all these things, it's all on the label. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be a long list to to (laughs) rattle off. But, uh, and then put them in infusion bags and taste over the course of about a month usually. So some of the things I often pull out a little bit earlier if I feel like the extraction is getting strong or let them go longer if it seems um, not strong enough. And then it gets super gently filtered and, and bottled. So it's this process that both takes years and kind of comes together pretty quickly mm-hmm. once you're on the infusion mm-hmm. process. Interesting. And it's definitely a feast for the senses. I think uh, my tasting notes sort of tend a little bit more esoteric than uh, even, even most winemakers, which are pretty esoteric to begin with, you know, because I'm always like, oh, this is like Chinchona root. Nobody knows what that is, but, but it is.
1: <laughs> How did you... Uh, develop that part of your palate with it was is this purely through tasting over the years or have you developed a, a palate that you can describe wines in those kind of terms and how have you sort of educated yourself over the years on that
2: I mean I think I spend a lot of time if I am you know out in the woods or in the supermarket um, I I smell and taste everything that I think won't kill me to put in my mouth um, and I think you know being really intentional about it uh, you know not just kind of like giving something a quick sniff but you know really spending time and closing your eyes and trying to sort of imprint those aromas um, onto your brain um, and you know I grew up and still live on the edge of you know the like Oregon coastal forest and I think that there is a lot out there that is. Definitely, kind of informing the wines. Um, You know, I think a a great example that I that I love to refer to is that I would always do these blending tastings with uh, Patrick and Ryan over at Dominio when I was working there. And Patrick and I, one time, we were tasting um, a Sturmer Pinot Noir, uh, and so you know we had like you know 15 or 20 tasting notes for each thing. Um, And then we would kind of read read each of our tasting notes and kind of compare and talk about where we thought it should go in the blend. And this one barrel, I had written, you know, all the normal stuff, cherries and you know, violets and this, that, and the other. And the underside of of a bracken fern, (laughs) um, which I thought was really specific. And I was like, you know, I don't think this is not something that like anybody's gonna have a reference for, but like it's very much like the thing that I am getting on the nose of this wine. And I just feel like I should write it down because it will help me remember the wine and kind of like be informed by the wine Mm -hmm. um, going forward. And it turned out that Patrick had also written the underside of a fern, you know, which I think both speaks to how much that time that we both spend kind of like wandering around, you know, idly smelling things. But I think it also speaks to the sense of like, you know, that there is this like real terroir driven character, you know, to to these wines and that maybe some of these things that I'm not even certain sometimes, if I'm, you know, pulling out of my imagination, you know, that there is kind of a real consanguinity like in well-made wines between the, the wine and the place, even as specifically as the underside of a fern. <laughs> but the only way that you will be able to pull that tasting note out is if you have walked through the woods smelling the underside of a fern, which I encourage everyone to do. A, because it will, you know, bring a real moment of joy into your life to be out there absorbing all these smells. And because it makes your tasting notes a lot more interesting.
1: Mm-hmm you'll know what it means when you see that in the tasting notes. You'll be able to, I, I, I know that.
2: Totally, yeah. <laughs> and then I think it is, you know, it's helpful, you know, from a winemaking perspective. I think, you know, there are tasting notes for different reasons. There are tasting notes that you're writing to sell wine, to create a picture of the wine that is both honest, but hopefully also attractive and evocative to consumers. And <laughs> I usually don't put the underside of a bracken and Fern on those because I think it just sounds kind of snooty and nobody knows what that is. Um, but then there are also the tasting notes that you kind of write to cement a wine and what it is in your own mind, and I think those, you know, the more out there you can get, the better of a sense of the wine that you'll have, you know. And and I definitely encourage people, you know, even if it's like, oh, it smells like the, you know, the foyer of my grandmother's house in the fall, you know. I mean, that doesn't mean anything to anyone else, but it. You know, it informs your connection to the wine, and you know mm-hmm. you'll you remember that. And everyone has that, everyone has that uh, that memory that's super specific to them, but also really profoundly tied to you know a sense of self or a sense of place. And those are great wine tasting notes, uh, unless you're trying to sell it. In which case, you probably better stick with like cherries and violets.
1: <laughs> Things that sound appetizing. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, you were kind of an outlier earlier and, and that you've sort of had a role that you that has grown with you, but that you've basically kept for all this time. But of course, we're here at Duck Pond today, which has not been mentioned yet. So tell me about how we came to be at Duck Pond today.
2: Well, it was as much of a surprise to me as it was to anyone else. Um, you know, I mean, I think, uh, so Duck Pond was acquired by Integrated Beverage Group in 2018. Um, they first acquired uh, Stone Wolf in Oregon in 2017, and they acquired ransom in the spring of 2020. Um, and it was it was an interesting time for them to acquire ransom, uh, both because I think literally the day that the sale went through was the day that the first COVID case uh, in Yamhill County was announced. And so, you know, Tad, I think. Uh, goes down in history as the sort of the luckiest business deal, uh, you know, ever, I think, because ultimately, you know, I think this company has made really, you know, good decisions and has come through the pandemic, you know, in a pretty strong way. And also, I think just has a broader reach, you know, Mm -hmm. I think ransom, um, you know, has been really focused um, nationally and through distribution, and has been really heavily on premise focused, um, you know, and I think, The the ransom brand, I think, certainly you know, being a a super small business, I think would have had a much more challenging year on its own, um, and I think is probably in a better and safer position. Um, You know, Tad probably has a lot less gray hair than he would have had he you know had to navigate this this small business. You know, where he wore almost every hat that there was um, on his own, and so I think you know it was it was a big surprise to me but I think also we were at an interesting point at Ransom where we had been on this um, you know quite literally exponential growth curve for several years Um, and I think you know at some point Tad kind of said okay you know what this is big enough this is a sustainable size that we can do with a small team and we're making products that we're really proud of that have a good connection to the market and you know let's do these things let's do them really well let's not stay until nine o'clock at night waxing and labeling old Tom Tomjin because the truck is coming in the morning anymore you know let, let's try and like hit a stride and the sense of you know you know kind of emotional sustainability um, and I think in a way that sort of coincided with you know I think we had all been doing it for a long time and I think hitting that stride for me in a way kind of felt like okay well how am I going to continue to grow you know it's like i want to be here doing this i want to be doing what i'm doing but i also you know at some point if you're doing the same amount of the same thing um you know i think there can be a sense that well you know what is going to be what is going to be the next big challenge Mm -hmm. you know um and i was kind of mulling that over as i always am and you know failing to make decisions about how to Restructure my life as I always am, um, and um, and then the sale was announced. Uh, you know, and I think it was definitely it was a big surprise to me, and I think to everyone uh, because ransom and Tad have always kind of been synonymous. Um, and I think you know, for his sake, to be able to just hand it off, part and parcel, and not try and figure out how to like slowly piece out the zillion things that he was owning to different people is probably like an easier an easier thing. And I think that he found a really good partner in Integrated Beverage because they were looking to do a lot of the, you know, sustainability work that we had been doing. Um, and they had a broader reach, you know, distribution wise, and really, I think, had the ability to kind of, to, you know, take ransom and not really change it, but sort of fold it into a broader structure that wasn't just a few people trying to do so many different things, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to say, okay, the marketing department will do the marketing, <laughs> and you know, the accounting department will do the accounting. Um, and so I think, as much as it was a big surprise, and I wasn't totally at first kind of certain about, you know, it's like, well, what does this mean for me? You know, how how am I going to do this? And also, I think also just you know, the idea that this kind of big outside company, I was like, well, clearly I wouldn't still be able to make the wines at Lumos and make the wines here. You know, they're not going to let me do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy that even Tad and I were able to figure that out for, you know, for all this time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that felt really uncomfortable, the idea that I would have to leave, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. leave Lumos, which I, you know, really love too. And somehow it seemed like they, I think this company, even though they're, you know, fairly big and fairly geographically disparate, they you know they do really kind of listen to people and they were like oh no you know if you feel like you can handle it you know you're an adult like make it make it work you know (laughs) um you know and sometimes like am i making it work i don't know if i'm making it work i don't know if i've ever really been making it work um but you know i think from that sort of initial sense of being taken aback and not being sure like you know how it was going to unfold um, i think it's been great to be in this kind of bigger context and Doing, you know, doing kind of management of a kind of broader scale of production, and you know, seeing how to make a 50,000 case line, which is not something I'd ever really done before, and um, and you know, working with a bigger team, and you know, being able to hand off some of the stuff that ate up a lot of my time, mm-hmm. like ordering packaging. You know, here there's a person who does that, um, and that's that is great. <laughs> Because I think every winemaker will tell you that uh, you can spend a lot of time just ordering glass um, So yeah, I think it's been it's been great to kind of see a different side of the industry um, and kind of experience different challenges and kind of stay fresh and feel like I you know i would never really had a job that required me to get on conference calls with people, you know, and I think there's been a lot of professional skill building um, that, that I don't think I really realized like how much I needed mm-hmm. um, and I definitely
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know have this whole whole other sort of like linguistic taxonomy uh, you know around interacting with these like disparate parts of the company who you know have their own skill sets and, and their own contributions and you know it can be it can be a little hectic you know there's always a lot going on there's mm-hmm. always, you know, there's always something being bottled, which means there's always ten thousand things to juggle. But, um, but it's a great team, and I think every single person who works here, from the CEO to, you know, the seller hands, it, you know, everybody is really great, and it's just been a real joy to, you know, have a have a new team.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you've been you've been sort of juggling two different white m- making wine different places this whole time. Uh, I'm curious as the, as those places both grew, how you did manage that and, and how, if, if at all, that has changed since the transition last year.
2: Yeah, I mean it's definitely sometimes uh, sometimes been a challenge, I think, especially during harvest. I feel like every harvest I get to the end and I think like, wow, I can't believe that worked. I should probably figure that out. But you know, I mean it's it's hard because I started doing them both together and I care so much about both brands and in you know the people associated with both brands. Um, and you know, I think it's been instructive to kind of look at what Dai does with you know, running Lumos and managing Temperance Hill and managing several other vineyards and see that, you know, the, the real key is to have a great team in place and to trust them, you know? And sometimes I certainly feel guilty like, oh man, I wish I, you know, was here to, do your long day with you, and also, you know, these guys' long day with them. But you know, the winemaking decisions have been laid out, and we have a plan. And I'm gonna go make a plan at the other place, and then if I can get done before midnight, I'll come back and you know help you guys scrub the floors. <laughs> um, but I think you know, in some ways, as somebody who uh, perhaps could be more organized uh, both in their personal life and their professional life. I think, you know, it definitely I think forces me, you know, I go to Lumos in the morning during harvest and I just know that I need to assess every tank and get everything work ordered out and, you know, spend whatever time that I have left doing production. But, you know, I think it, it forces me to, you know, be concise in my, you know, in my strategic thought in a way that is pretty unnaturally uh, to me and, and I think probably to, to a lot of winemakers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, I am proud of the work that I've done at both places. And, you know, sometimes it it feels like a, a lot to a lot to manage. Um, but I think also, they really informed each other over the years, too. And I think, you know, the the team dynamic, at the, the two places has always been different, and you know the product lines, while similar in some ways, have been different, and you know the way that I've sort of interacted with my sort of role, um, you know, in the winemaking team has been different, and so I think ultimately it's been, you know, when you, when you ask me on most days, I say like, oh yeah, it's been great, you know, it's been because I think most people have this sense of. Working a similar number of places, but just sequentially Mm -hmm. instead of, uh, you know, contemporaneously Um, And I think in some ways that is, you know, probably the you know The better way to manage it in terms of your own sanity Mm -hmm. But I do really love that I have this like long history with several different brands, you know that You know, I'm not I'm not old enough to have been the on the winemaking team for 15 years two different places Mm -hmm. Other than having done it this way, and Mm -hmm. I do think that you understand site specificity, um, you know, and the evolution of, you know, farming practices and how they how they impact the wines and things like that really differently when you, you know, when you're somewhere for a long time. And mm-hmm. I feel really grateful that people have been willing to, you know, work around me sometimes not being there for a thing that, uh, you know, that needed to happen mm-hmm. um, in order to have had that experience. Mm-hmm.
1: So tell me about your winemaking philosophy or winemaking style uh, and sort of what you've, again, what you've sort of brought from other people and and what you've made your own and and how it's evolved over the years. What what are the wines you're trying to make? What, what What are they like and why?
2: I mean, I think you know as somebody who is definitely uh, you know a creature of of the place um, you know my my main hope is to express the place and I think you know all winemakers say that, and everyone goes about it uh, a little bit differently um, but I think for me the you know the most important thing, I guess philosophically is to kind of create this sense of you know of you have a sense of you know what the place. Has to offer, and you try and think of what winemaking techniques are going to to bring that out. And I think a lot of that does become a sense of like, okay, what you know, what experiences um, did I have with the block last year? You know, oh, this one seems like it always has this like really nice silkiness and salinity. I'm going to lean into that by you know trying to not be very extractive and do some post maceration, um, you know, and put it in. Barrels that are, you know, leaning this direction um, instead of that direction, um, but I think ultimately having a sense of kind of curiosity about what the place has to offer. Um, you know, I try, if I have several for mentors from a block, I try and do different things with them. You know, maybe one of them will include some whole cluster and the other one I will 100% de-stem. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that if I'm building this kind of palette of things, that when it comes time to paint the wine, I'll have tools. Um, and you know maybe you know in some years one thing works really well and the other thing doesn't. In some years they both work well, but neither quite feels like the place, and mm-hmm. some combination of both does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really you know I try to be sort of inquisitive about what the you know what the site has to offer, and the more different things I can do, um, you know I will you know if I can do you know some of them indigenous ferments and maybe inoculate a few with something that I think will be really specific to the character, uh, you know, or have one of them be a shorter fermentation, one of them be longer, one be cooler, one be warmer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's maybe more work to think about, uh, but ultimately it makes blending really fun. And I think especially, you know, I don't tend to use a whole lot of new oak, and so really, you know, hopefully there is enough there to kind of structurally build a wine that is, you know, that is complete.
1: He mentioned that, especially at Lumos, of course, Dai is known for vineyard, his vineyard, and all the vineyards. What along the way have you picked up about vineyard work and about what you are looking for in a particular vineyard and what you wanted, what you want to express from a vineyard?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really fun to work with Dai on these wines, kind of as he. I mean, he's been farming in temperance for over 20 years, um, you know, and I also work with a lot of fruit from our family vineyard, and you know, my dad and uncle have been farming for, you know, for I guess, gosh, close to close to 50 years, really. And so it's interesting to sort of have this reciprocity between site and um, between site and and wine, um, you know, and I think especially Diane and I do a lot of tasting together of these block designates and before they're blended or, and after they're blended. And, and I feel like the process of making those wines has really kind of um, you know, reflected back onto the farming process. You, know, you think, oh, man, why is it? You know, Pump House is on Witzel, which is a really challenging soil type, and you know, Dye switched part of the walk over to Scott Henry because it just seemed like the, you know, the, the balance wasn't there. And it wasn't necessarily obvious from looking at the vines, but you tasted the wine relative to a block right next to it. And you had this really strong sense that, you know, that, that something wasn't quite, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a beautiful wine, but just not quite harmonious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think through a lot of those tasting sessions, uh, he was able to really dial and dial in the farming. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think farming is definitely, it's the art of paying attention um, to one place for a really long time. And um, I think that, you know, my my hope is that Growers, you know, are are paying attention, and you know, farming farming sustainably. Both my family farm and uh, all the Lumo sites are are farmed certified organic, and um, you know, I think there there are a lot of different ways to move towards sustainability. And depending on you know what scale you're at, you know, certain things might be might or might not be viable for you know for for different different scales and and different wines. You know, here we have a range of things, but. I certainly think that you know the best farmers are really paying attention to their site and Mm. and being thoughtful about about what it has to offer
1: so we talked earlier about 2020 and i want to come back to it a little bit because obviously a a big year for you in a lot of ways interesting year Um, (laughs) it
2: was it was a really interesting year (laughs) year.
1: so other than the the sale Mm -hmm. tell me about as the pandemic gets here tell me about sort of your initial reaction to it both personally professionally and then the the adjustments made throughout the year to re, as a reaction to it
2: you know i mean i think that the the pandemic certainly was you know through the year i think you know we all felt a lot of Anxiety, you know, I think initially, especially, you know, for Ransom and Lumos, both being, you know, pretty small businesses at, at the outset, although Ransom, you know, was in this like big moment of transition. Um, you know, I think like my first concern was, what is this going to mean for the industry as a whole? You know, it seems like as soon as Tasty Room started shutting down, there was this big Kind of, you know, a lot of a lot of grapes suddenly seemed to not have homes, and you know, it was unclear what the you know sales channels were going to look like um, for all but the sort of like grocery store facing skews of larger brands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which like I definitely was grateful to suddenly be in a company that that has you know a number of really successful iterations of that. Um, you know, I think those were the things that were really like kind of bright spots. Um, but actually, I think it it pretty uh, quickly became clear that it was going to be kind of transformational from a sales aspect. And you know, I think Lumos is really fortunate to have this incredibly beautiful um, former dude ranch um, out uh, near Philomath and. It's a space where there's a lot of outdoor space for people to spread out and so once they were able to reopen, I think you know it was a real kind of customer base building experience for Lumos and the taste room actually had its best summer ever you know and we went from feeling like, oh my gosh you know how how is this going to work? you know people can't even come out and you know and pick up wines mm-hmm. to feeling like like there was a strong way forward and that it ultimately would you know inspire people who might otherwise have gone to a bar downtown to, it's like, well, you can't do that, but what you can do is come out here and set your picnic blanket way far away from anyone else, um, you know, and be in a place that isn't uh, your living room slash bedroom slash Zoom office all at once. You know, and I think from the perspective of the seller, you know, it's always, you know, we're always bottling here. And so the challenge of, you know, how do you have a rotating cast of characters on the bottling line and a bunch of people in production and, you know, knowing that you you can't you can't stop. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to be careful enough to not have a COVID outbreak, um, because I mean, especially during harvest. And I think that actually, during harvest, our COVID strategizing ended up informing our production management in a way that was really positive. Um, you know COVID aside. We organized interns into these three person pods and kind of had them doing discrete tasks and moving around together. The idea being that if somebody did catch COVID that we would be able to isolate the pod until they could get tested instead of all of the interns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I think that worked really well. I think people, you know, ended up developing really strong camaraderie, and you know, it's easier to manage people in a way because you had the sense of like, okay, like, what is this group of three doing? Not like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, and so, I think that that's actually, uh, you know, even though I don't foresee COVID as being uh, quite as uh, at the forefront of our mind. During this harvest, as it was during last harvest, I think that we'll probably retain a lot of the Mm -hmm. things that we did. I mean, I guess I am hopeful that we can also sit at a big table and have a big lunch together, um, you know, and be able to feel like if we all go out for a beer after the end of a long day, that it isn't potentially going to create, you know, like a contagion event Um, and not feel so worried, you know, for especially vulnerable friends and family. I mean, it was certainly something that. I was concerned about, you know, it's like my parents are older and, you know, I was the person in my household who was going to work in the sort of biggest group of people. And, you know, you always think it's like, I just I don't want to be the person who gets anybody sick. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to get sick myself, but I really don't want to get the Mm -hmm. people that I care about sick. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think there's a tremendous sense of relief now with vaccines. I mean, I think COVID is clearly not over, but it does feel. A little bit less terrifying, knowing that at least you know almost everybody on our staff is vaccinated, and in my family everybody's vaccinated except for the little kids. Who, you know, little kids. It seems like generally do okay. So, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a huge learning experience, and. You know, clearly the most tremendous irony of all of this is that we spent all summer going to webinars and planning and strategizing about this, you know, this one catastrophe only to uh, be completely surprised at the 11th hour by a really catastrophe. So I mean, I guess that just goes to show that uh, you know that's just uh, that's just how life goes, right?
1: The best laid plans. The
2: best laid plans. Yeah. Well,
1: what's, as long as we're talking about it, let's talk about harvest last year. Um, again, sort of initial reaction and and adjustments you had to make and, and decisions you had to make.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, my first reaction uh, was to just start crying a lot, and uh, you know, I think you know initially I think. There was obviously this kind of period of momentary confusion where we knew there had been these fires. It seemed like the smoke had been high up. Now the smoke was low down. But you know, maybe it was low down and, you know, diffuse enough that it wouldn't be, you know, impactful and there was no way to get numbers from anybody. And so I think, you know, we spent the first week of it in a little bit of a daze knowing that we were probably going to have problems, but not being exactly sure mm-hmm. what what that meant um you know and then we did a lot of discussion you know i think as we started to watch a lot of people pulling out of contracts um, you know i think my my primary concern was that you know it's like okay now i work for this like this big company Um, i'm watching a lot of big companies you know like renegotiate or back out of contracts Mm -hmm. completely like i just hope that i don't have to call my own father and, (laughs) and, you know, and and die and tell them, like, sorry, we're not buying any grapes this year, um, because I would probably quit. Um, And, and unfortunately, that, you know, that was not what this company did. You know, we certainly, you know, had conversations, especially, you know, we have some vineyards that were in very close proximity to very large fires, you know, and in some cases, you know, we, you know, did some price adjustment to kind of split the, you know, the cost of mitigation measures. Uh, But ultimately everyone, you know, if they wanted to take insurance, there were a few growers that had insurance that preferred to take it. But, you know, I didn't have to call anybody and tell them, we're not buying your grapes. Um, And I'm really grateful for that (laughs) because I don't think, uh, I don't think, I don't think I have the, 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 you know, the the desire nor nor the strength to do it. Um, And then we kind of just got to work, you know, I had worked with, a very small amount of smoke affected fruit one or two times in the past but like you know a hundred cases of something um and not very smoke affected you know so I didn't really have a good frame of reference like many people here I think anybody who hasn't spent a lot of time in California is probably flying blind a little bit um and so you know we just started you know getting to work and we um you know we have a a lab that we use that's, you know, kind of associated with our company that was able to do a lot of, um, you know, a lot of testing once they kind of got online and it was great to be able to do trials and see some actual numbers that suggested like, okay, yes, like these press fractions that we're making, you know, the fact that every time a press of Pinot Gris comes in, it has to go into four separate tanks instead of one and that means four times as much work at every stage of the process. That is a pain, but it is working. You know, you can see here that there's way more of these compounds in T4 than T1, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, I think we learned a lot. Ultimately, I, you know, as I was watching a lot of people, you know, kind of saying like, "We're not going to do it. We're not even going to try." I was kind of having the feeling of, you know, I I think I'm sometimes too optimistic about things, and I definitely laid awake some nights thinking. What do, what do these people know that, that I don't? You know, like maybe maybe this is all gonna be for naught and we will have worked incredibly hard for no result. Um, but you know, I mean, we have, uh, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, I think, certainly at least tens of thousands of cases of 2020 Pinot Noir on the market already and um, it seems like people are drinking it. It's It's gone and we're bottling more. So, you know, I think uh, through a lot of uh, you know a lot of hard work Um, I feel like we have made a lot of wines that we're proud of and you know it's it's definitely not something that I want to do again but climate change is real and so I'm sure we will do it again hopefully not I mean I think the the scale of you know having basically the entire Willamette Valley affected to some extent I think hopefully is historic and you know it wouldn't be quite so bad if it was a little bit here and a little bit there you know I think just dealing with everything all at once is really challenging but I feel like we learned a lot and I'm definitely you know definitely more prepared for the next time which I just hope it's not this year you know if we can just get one just one uh, one year and then the next year maybe I don't know it's it's gonna be a thing and it's good that we all learned a lot about how to deal with it um,
1: yeah, you need a bounce back here, right? you got to have a bounce back here before. Totally.
2: You know, like 2007 was so hard, and then 2008, it was this nice spaced out harvest. We harvested in t-shirts, and it's good, because if 2008 had been like 2007, we might not be sitting here talking right now. <laughs> and I joke about that sometimes with friends in the industry, like, how many years, like 2020, do you think you could do before you left? It's like, maybe not very much. <laughs> Not in a row at least, but I mean I I do think it's like a tremendous testament to the passion of the industry. I mean in in California they have had significant challenges in some areas, you know not the entire state but certainly there have been wineries in California that would have been dealing with it at the scale that we're dealing with it three years running and I you know, have tremendous admiration for their fortitude and I hope by the time it gets that bad here I'm retired. But unfortunately, I'm pretty young, so I probably won't be.
1: Maybe, maybe live in British Columbia or something at that point. Yeah. There you go.
2: Yeah. Or maybe we'll get our act together as a society and uh, turn the turn the tide. You know.
1: You're very optimistic. I appreciate. Yeah.
2: That. You know, it's like you kind of have to be. I think uh, winemakers have to be have to be optimists. You have to be a time optimist at the very least. You know, you have to believe you can do more than is possible. Uh, you have to not be able to. Think about time in a realistic way.
1: <laughs> you mentioned some something earlier about that kind of the, the changes the, in changes the industry you'd seen in terms of sort of accessibility and, and real realistic accessibility. Um, from, the, from a more broader perspective, what else has changed in Oregon wine? What what are the biggest differences from your kind of early impressions of it to now? Um, and <clears throat> what do you see as you look ahead for the future and for the industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think, especially in the last five years, the sort of entrance of, you know, bigger companies and, you know, players from elsewhere, um, like on, at, at scale, obviously, we've had a lot of pretty significant acquisitions, you know, p- perhaps the least of which ransom. I mean, I think, you know, the, the number of acquisitions over the last few years, um, you know, the, the landscape of the industry has really changed, um, you know, I guess. One thing that I see as potentially, uh, you know, diminished sort of suite of accessibility is accessibility to contracted fruit. You know, I think historically the way that, uh, you know, a winery has started in Oregon is somebody, um, you know, somebody scrappy and passionate um, purchases some contracted fruit and builds a program and builds it into a bigger thing and then maybe at some point plants the state vineyards. And then kind of grows it from there and I think that as you see a lot of the sort of traditionally accessible you know couple tons here a couple tons here there properties you know at the at the ultra premium level especially um, be sort of you know held held in house um, by purveyors you know. I think in some ways I think those are really exciting opportunities for those vineyards to get global recognition um, but it's sad in a way because I think that you know in order for people to really not just kind of start something but start something that is um, you know able to achieve uh, international recognition there needs to be that access um, without without having to have millions and millions of dollars to plant something and wait Um, and it's one of the things that i love about working with temperance is i think you know it is uh it is one of the vineyards that's still really doing that for people um and still allowing small brands to Mm -hmm. have a piece of something really remarkable um you know and i think it's been an important thing for you know for a lot of brands as they grow up and you know a lot of the folks who are not working with temperance anymore kind of built their estate program and then kind of returned it to you know the next generation uh you know of kind of up and coming brands and i think it's great it's great for the industry to have resources like that Um, and i definitely see that as something that has diminished in the last 10 years Um, and i hope that it won't diminish completely Mm -hmm. Um, but i think also it seems like every year it becomes kind of more challenging to source fruit if sourcing fruit is your is your kind of like primary mo um, and I think that if you are a business trying to protect your own interests it, it really does make sense to you know own your properties and then you can farm them how you want and you know and have guaranteed access so I think especially as we see more really significant you know interests from California and France and and elsewhere coming in you know in They would they would be foolish not to do that, um, but I do think it really changes the it changes the ways into the industry, and I think just as there are more, you know, the likelihood of somebody getting an entry level full time job that has a clear upward trajectory within a company, I think is much greater. You know, even when I uh, I always you know joke around with friends who you know are in kind of similar generational spot to me. It's like yeah, you know, like kids these days, they don't know how lucky they are to have a full-time seller hand job and not have to just cobble it together from five different places five hours a week, you know? And, um, you know, it makes us feel very old. <laughs> um, but it, but it's true. I mean, there are more kind of opportunities that are meaningful. But I think the, the flip side of that is that, you know, perhaps a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, the Tads of the world, you know, where it's kind of like you're working as a seller hand and, and doing all this other stuff on the side, you know? I think maybe it's, um, you know, it's a different set of opportunities. Less access to fruit, less sort of kind of cobble it together mentality, and more opportunities to kind of, uh, you know, function as an employee within a brand and mm-hmm. have kind of stable, you know, career opportunities that way. So, you know, I think it's it seems like a, a more mature industry, and you know, I definitely think that there are reasons to be nostalgic for the way it was and reasons to celebrate the way that it is. And, you know, I think that right now, in a lot of ways, feels like a little bit of a sweet spot and that, you know, it's, it's getting to the point where it's pretty hard to imagine anybody who is not independently wealthy or heavily invested in purchasing land, especially this year, post COVID, somehow it seems like it has gotten way worse, which was not what I expected to see happening. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do think that, Especially relative to California or France, I mean, in theory, it's still somewhat possible here, and I guess it seems like that won't be true for very much longer. And I think that's definitely, you know, something to something to mourn. Um, and I think it's a challenge for us in a policy way. Um, you know, I think the like the ru- the land use rules that kind of protect farmland I think are really important but it is an interesting thing to think okay you know I think 15 acres for a winery seems like the right size in order to have kind of you know like enough space for wastewater and you know to have meaningful acreage Mm -hmm. but also now it means that you know the cost of buying a 20 acre property and planting it suddenly means that you know nobody Nobody is going to do that without significant wealth anymore. Mm-hmm. In the way that you could in my parents' generation, or even you know the generation between us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it does become it's a challenge for the industry, I guess, and for society in general to figure out how do we how do we create opportunities for you know for equity and make sure that the land doesn't all become sort of the provenance of. Large corporate interests and like extremely, you know, wealthy folks from elsewhere. Like, how do we make sure that somebody can still kind of work their way into having something? And I, I do not know the answer to that question, Um, but I'm interested. uh, I'm interested in what other people have to say about it.
1: Are there other challenges that you're looking ahead for anything else that kind of on the horizon that that alarms you that or or the or that you're looking forward to Is there something coming for the future of oregon wine that you're excited about or, or fearful of
2: I mean, I'm excited about a lot of things. And I think that we have, um, you know, there are a bunch of, now that Oregon has this reputation um, that's globally known for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris, I think there is a lot of uh, movement into other varietals, which is certainly exciting as somebody who likes to drink different stuff and make different stuff. um, I mean, I think the thing. That I am the most fearful of, and I think anybody who's paying attention should be, um, is water. You know, we have a very dry summer season. It gets drier for longer every year. Um, Most Oregon vineyards are, you know, either dry farmed or, you know, if they're on a smaller scale, at least, I mean, probably most is not, you know, because the the big guys have meaningful irrigation systems set up but you know there are a lot of places that have relied on being able to dry farm and i think historically that has been you know i would say the right the right way to do it and a sustainable way to do it but you know you can't you can't dry farm if it never rains from april to october mm-hmm. and i mean we're not there yet but there have been years where it's been close you know and i think Ultimately, what does not work is for everyone to tap into residential wells in groundwater-limited areas to water vineyards. And a lot of years, that's what ends up happening. And I know the Eola Hills can't handle it, um, and there doesn't seem to be a plan. And I think that you know all of these hillsides are on small gravel aquifers. Um, I think you know the water situation is is critical, and I don't think there are enough answers. And Saying this out loud, I'm realizing that I need to be better about investing my investing my own uh, efforts in figuring it out. But but it's tough, you know, because nobody uh, nobody wants to be limited, and nobody wants to not water their flowers. And honestly, the scale of the problem is probably such that even if nobody showered all summer, we would still have a problem. Um, and I think ultimately, it will take really meaningful, thoughtful um, programming and you know, lots of kind of permacultural structures and things like that to figure it out. And, um, you know, as usual, we will probably start thinking about it as soon as it's a couple of years too late and has already been a really critical issue because um, that's, we're humans and we, we uh, we bat the ball that's, uh, that's whizzing by our face right now and not the next pitch. And, you know, that's, that is what it is. But yeah, I think, I think water is the thing that we all need to think a lot more about, mm-hmm. not just vineyards and, and viticultural land and, and wineries. I mean, I think you know, the region as a whole has mm-hmm. grown so much and you know the fact that there were water use restrictions in a lot of the small towns when I was a little kid and now those towns have three times as many people, I don't know how they're doing it, but um, yeah, we've got we've to get together as a community and really, really figure that out or, uh, or the industry I think will really, Really suffer. What
1: mm-hmm. yeah. for yourself as you look ahead? What, what what's coming next for you uh, and uh, and and all of your various projects?
2: <laughs> I know. I mean, this is a this is what keeps me up at night. You know, I think uh, I I certainly am you know engaged in a lot of things. You know, I think um, you know I I love doing all the things that I'm doing, and at some point, probably, you know, I will have to figure out how to. You know, prioritize and scale back one or the other. I think, especially, as, I certainly don't spend as much time in the vineyard as I should. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure either uh, either of my family members would would probably say that too. And you know, I think especially as they get older, like I've got to figure out how to fold that in in a, in a more meaningful way too. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess I I'm never totally sure. I mean, I feel really invested in in all of the projects that you know that I've been working on, and and definitely you know feel. Invested in in seeing them through whatever that means um, But I also feel like I you know have developed Really great teams in, in all the places that I work um, and so you know Maybe what that means somewhere is is you know kind of like handing something off to somebody but but I haven't figured it out yet um, And ultimately I think you know right now. I still feel like I am learning a ton everywhere and you know Trying to figure out how to uh, how to make it all work, while also I think I think a lot of the stuff that we've touched on in terms of you know land use and you know like water management and things like that, it's been hard I think with COVID too um, you know to go to some of those meetings that are in person. But it's definitely something that um, you know that is a a real goal of mine like in the next decade you know to try and um, you know be engaged in that discourse um, you know because I do think I have a fairly unique perspective um, and uh, you know sometimes people sometimes people listen to me (laughs) Um, and I think especially in so far as a lot of the sort of planning around that has to be um, you know has to involve all the shareholders um, you know I think there's a lot of mistrust between the wine industry and and the the communities uh, within it and you know I think the wine industry has a significant culpability uh, in that um, as does you know some of the other folks in the community and um, I think you know bridging bridging those gaps Because I think there are great people uh, great people in all corners and we're, we're going to have to work together if we want to uh, figure all this stuff out.
1: I hesitate to even ask this, but are there any projects on the horizon for you or anything else you're excited to do?
2: <laughs> um, gosh, I mean, I think uh, I, on the, I, I mean, I guess not, nothing super specific comes to mind, I guess. I mean. I, uh, I always have lots of projects uh, at, at my own place and you know I think at some point there are you know there's definitely more land there that would be cool to plant um, you know I'd love to have some whites there but you know I think figuring out how to have enough time to do more of that um, as is probably is an important precursor to, to that um, and you know I always have lots of Personally, I think my, my next uh, non-work-related project is gonna be building the wood-fired oven on our patio. We were gonna do it last year, but didn't quite get to it. But the patio is poured, so that's like a good first step. <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, there will always be something, but I don't have a, necessarily a clear view of, uh, maybe not as clear a view as I, as I should of what the next thing is.
1: Fair enough. Uh, if you had uh, to give uh, advice or words of wisdom to someone who wanted to join the Oregon wine industry, what, what would you tell them?
2: Um, I think I would tell them to, you know, if, you, if you're if you working for somebody who, um, you know, who you feel good about. I mean, I think that, you know, finding finding mentors who are really positive influences you know people who not only challenge you but also really affirm you um, and just networking as much as possible I mean I think that I have learned as much sitting you know outside the bitter monk and talking to people who were kind of tangentially related to me within the industry and asking questions of technical reps you know I think a lot of my sense of you know of understanding kind of the finishing process of wines, comes from technical reps and you know they are a wealth of knowledge um, and you know it it is it is actually their job to uh, to make the case for their products which often involves a a lot of education Mm -hmm. Um, and I think just being really you know intellectually curious about all sorts of things and and uh, you know reading a lot of articles and um, and just sort of making sure that the uh, I think the thing that I say a lot, which I guess is maybe not direct. I guess I I did recently phrase this in the form of direct advice to somebody, which is that the Oregon wine industry, I think the wine industry in general, has this really kind of, um, you know, dynamic and you know often haphazard organizational structure and you know, I think if you were talking to someone who is um, you know in training to be a physician there is this clear you know then you go to medical school and then you do your residency and then you can do a specialty residency and you know and then you know these are the things and I think in the organ line industry and you know this is certainly something that you know that I felt in my like late 20s and early 30s and depending on how quickly you find your way to the organ line industry. I think this can happen you know, at, at many different points in your life, but kind of at the same point in your professional career, uh, that it isn't always clear. You know, like, it's, it's, a, it's a ladder that kind of goes through some pretty obtuse ceilings sometimes. And I think a lot of people end up feeling like the way forward isn't necessarily clear, and the way to the next step isn't necessarily clear. Um, And it's easy to kind of feel like you're sitting in a spot and not really understanding Mm -hmm. what it means to your ultimate trajectory Um, And I think that you know when you're in that spot the thing to do is to focus on some specific thing that you can really um, That you can really kind of build within that role, you know, maybe if you are an analogist. you can um, you know set up a big project that moves something forward for the company but also looks really good on a resume um, or you know if you are a seller hand who wants to kind of get to the next step you know find I I knew a guy who was looking for a job um, Kevin who is up at Halloran you know and he's like you know I'm having a hard time finding a job I'm gonna start a a wine journal club and it'll be a great way to network and I'll be building, you know, my own kind of like keeping my skills sharp and keeping my my brain sharp um, and also meeting people, um, you know, and hopefully impressing them with uh, my thoughtful insights about these wine journals. Um, And I think, you know, stuff like that, it's really easy to say, wait, how do I get from point A to point B in the wine industry? It's not nearly as clear. Um, but, you know, I think just staying engaged, networking, saying hi to everyone, um, you know, being personable, uh, you know, and and being kind, um. but, you know, I think everyone kind of hits this plateau where it's not clear, um, you know, what the way forward is. And I think the thing that I would say is that for almost everyone I know who is kind of Gotten beyond that, it ends up being a total surprise and not necessarily something that was achieved strategically. You know, not that it's like, you know, you're working hard, you're doing everything that you can do, Um, but I think a lot of times things in the wine industry happen in these kind of fits and starts. Um, And I think just like having a clear view of that, um, and you know, of course, the problem with. Things is that so often, you know, if you're you're being, you know, interviewed for a trade publication, you don't say like, oh yeah, and then I sat around wondering what I was doing with my life for a couple of years, and then suddenly I got a promotion, and then I knew, you know, I think people, you know, people condense their own stories into things that have, you know, a narrative arc that is logical. Um, and so I guess the advice that I would give people is that it is almost always illogical. Almost everyone has this sort of experience of, oh yeah, and then I was feeling like I'm a winemaker now. Like, why do I feel like I am not sort of relevant? Oh, okay, now I you know, have gotten nominated to be on the Grand Seminar panel. Like, that feels like the next thing that like, you know, allows me to sort of expand my reach and my professional role. And, you know, I think the uh, the sort of chaotic nature of the wine industry makes sometimes like the path forward really unclear but I mm-hmm. think as long as you're connected to people working hard and you know making sure that you are you know trying to always like improve and grow your skill set that that something something good will, will happen but not necessarily when you expect it or because you did a specific thing. For two minutes.
1: Two minutes? Two minutes, perfect. Two minutes,
2: all right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> These are all the questions that I had for you, so is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything we didn't cover that we should have covered today?
2: Gosh, I feel like that was a that was a, that was a pretty uh, pretty great run through everything. I mean, I think uh, those were, were great questions, and I think,
1: uh, yeah. Well, thank you. thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, for hosting us here, and sharing your story with us and your thoughts, and we will go ahead and let you off the hook and just in the nick of time.